attending the church where we are members. And she will be privileged to hear one of my best friends in the entire world preach. His name is Chuck Quarles. Chuck and I graduated from, well, that four-year school in Lafayette County. We graduated from there together. Uh, I met Chuck when I started Ole Miss. I was with my first senior year. <laughs> and uh, got to know Chuck, discovered that he and I had the uh, same major. And so we were plotting the course for us to be able to meet all the requirements and, and graduate together. He, of course, was a year younger than I was. I crammed uh, four years into five, and he finished on time. But uh, I was quickly drawn to Chuck. Uh, taking the same classes, uh, I, I didn't know him. He was a total stranger to me, but uh, I learned a little bit about him. His father taught in the criminal justice department there. And uh, Chuck went on to the mission field. Uh, he and I were uh, called to ministry and, and had conversations. My second senior year, we became best friends and have stayed in touch uh, throughout the years. He has taught uh, at New Orleans Seminary, is currently teaching at Southeastern Seminary, and uh, just happens to be the guest preacher at Broadmoor Baptist Church in Madison uh, today, So Angie went with excitement to get to meet him uh, again or talk to him again and hopefully renew the friendship, catch up with him and Julie and the kids and see how they're doing. But when I was in college, Chuck was a standout. You see, uh, both of us were Christians and we were attempting to survive in a non-Christian environment. Yes, I admitted it. Did you hear that? We were at Ole Miss in a non-Christian environment. Make the connections there. Both of us majored in sociology. Chuck graduated with a double major also in classical Greek. Why? I have no earthly idea. But so it be. But Chuck had the unusual ability because he was so well-rounded and well-grounded in his Christian faith that his witness just was second nature. If we were in a conversation with other people and an off-color comment was made, Chuck wouldn't laugh. But yet he, he, he didn't ridicule, he didn't condemn, he didn't attempt to berate the person. He attempted to befriend them and let them know that his faith meant the world to him. Chuck had the ability to preach without saying anything, and yet, when the opportunity presented itself for him to say something, he did so with such eloquence and diplomacy. I think that's what I admired so much about Chuck, and then, of course, he was uh, in our wedding when Angie and I got married in 1985, and we've been such wonderful friends. If you ask me to name a modern-day Daniel... I would start with Chuck Quarles. I want you to open your Bibles with me to Daniel chapter 1. And I want to begin a study with you this morning through the first six chapters of this book. If you look in a chart that categorizes the Old Testament books, you'll discover that the book of Daniel is considered to be prophecy. 
and certainly it is. But the prophetic portion of the book of Daniel mainly takes place in chapters 7 through 12. The first six chapters of the book of Daniel are autobiographical, at least for the most part. And so what I want to show you is how Daniel became a man that was to be respected and admired in his day and one that God honored in a very special way. It's a favorite book of mine, mainly because of what you read about in Daniel in the lion's den. But I want to show you that the preceding chapters only lead up to and feed into that culminating experience for Daniel. Daniel chapter 1 begins with these words. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. We understand that in those days, the way that kings uh, increased their power and their wealth was to simply to go to neighboring lands and cities and communities and claim them for himself. And that's exactly what King Nebuchadnezzar did. It says, The Lord gave Jehoiakim king of Judah into his hand, along with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and he brought the vessels into the treasury of his God. Now you read these first two verses, and you simply think these are historical background, just sort of an introduction to Daniel's story. But I want to show you something very interesting here. Only the first verse is historical in nature. Verse 2 gives us a spiritual perspective of what took place. It says that Nebuchadnezzar went into the land of Judah, that in around Jerusalem, and besieged it. He claimed it for himself. That would be the historical perspective. But verse 2 tells us that there was somebody else actually in charge, and that was the Lord God. The Lord allowed Nebuchadnezzar to do this thing. Understand the way that God operates in this world. There are some things that God causes to happen. There are some things that God allows to happen. We'll never fully reconcile the sovereignty of God and the free will of man. There are times that events take place in this world and we simply are left unknowing as to which has happened. Did God cause it or did God simply allow it to take place? The Bible tells us here that the Lord allowed Nebuchadnezzar to overtake Judah and Jerusalem. Throughout the Old Testament, you see that God allowed other foreign entities to do this from time to time. And it was mainly because that God had told Israel that they were to be a different people. And when they did not honor his name and live according to his expectations, he judged them by allowing other nations to take them over. And that's exactly what happened here, Nebuchadnezzar from Babylon. It says in verse 3, Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, the chief of his officials, to bring in some of the sons of Israel, including some of the royal family and of the nobles, youths in whom was no defect who were good-looking, showing intelligence in every branch of wisdom, endowed with understanding and discerning knowledge, and who had ability for serving in the king's court. And he ordered him to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. 
language of the Chaldeans in this day would have been Acadia. The king appointed for them a daily ration from the king's choice food and from the wine which he drank and appointed that they should be educated three years at the end of which they were to enter the king's personal service. And verse 6 says, Now among them from the sons of Judah were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Then the commander of the officials assigned new names to them. And to Daniel, he assigned the name Belteshazzar. To Hananiah, Shadrach. To Mishael, Meshach. And to Azariah, Abednego. The first thing I want to show you this morning is Daniel's greatest trial. His world was turned upside, upside down. Daniel and his friends were taken captive into a foreign land. And it was there that they were faced with the question, will you trust God to see you through this experience? I don't know whether you realize it or not, but that seems to be a theme of preaching, isn't it? We we preachers talk a lot about the difficulties in life, the tests that we endure, circumstances that come to our lives that we didn't invite, that we don't appreciate, and we don't want, and we struggle through them. And we wonder, what is God trying to teach me in and through these events? Well, that's exactly what was happening with Daniel here. I pray it never happens, but about the best way I can describe it is for you and me to think about, to imagine what it might be like if another foreign country out there, let's say North Korea, they've been in the news last year quite a bit, let's suppose that they were to make their way to the United States, overpower those in in charge in Washington, D.C., and then spread out into the other states, into the United States of North America, and force you and me to live their way. But then, let's suppose, heaven forbid, that they came and they surveyed the land and they took a select portion of our young people. Now, I know what you're thinking. I'm an educator. Some of you are saying, well, I could suggest some young people that they could take, right? We'd be better off without them. Those are probably not the ones that they would choose. It's not who Nebuchadnezzar chose. Daniel was forced to eat the Chaldeans' food. He was forced to wear their clothes. He was forced to live like they were to live. He, he was forced to be educated by them. That is, intent, that is exactly what Nebuchadnezzar intended to do. The Bible begins the book of Daniel by telling us that they were taken captive with a purpose in mind and that was that at some point down the road, three years after being inducted into the Babylonian language and culture, that they would enter the king's service. A couple of things I want to say about that is, first of all, the world is still trying to do that to us, whether you realize it or not. There's a totally different flow in this world. There's a totally different perspective. There's a totally different understanding of the way that life is to be lived. And it is a way that does not honor God. You and I are challenged to live differently in this world. You and I, every single day, wake up to the conflict and the friction that exists 
in the culture of America. And you and I have a choice to make. Will we trust God to see us through this life experience? Not just when difficult times come, but in times when we realize it's, it's taking place throughout our lifetime. If I gave some of you the opportunity to come up here and talk this morning and talk about the changes that you've seen over the course of your life, there are young people down here who would sit there and say, I, I can't relate to that. I have no idea what it would have been like to live back in that day. Young people can't imagine television with three or four channels. Young people can't imagine life without cell phones. Young people can't imagine life without social media. Life, young people can't imagine all of the things that they experience simply because it's the time in which they have been born and the things that have been afforded to them. And yet you and I know that down the road the world is going to continue to change. And the world is going to continue attempt, to attempt to change us to be more like them. And we have a choice to make if we're going to allow that to happen or not. And how we're going to respond to that. That was Daniel's greatest test. Was he going to trust God when his world was turned upside down. But I want to show you Daniel's greatest temptation here. King Nebuchadnezzar was very shrewd. He didn't bring the young people to Babylon to persecute them. He didn't bring them there to torment them. He took them there to brainwash them. He took them there with a different purpose and will in mind, totally opposite of anything that God would have ever intended for their lives. And look at what happens. Verse 8 says, But Daniel made up his mind that he would not defile himself with the king's choice food or with the wine with which he drank. You know the story. Read these verses later this afternoon in detail, and here's what you're going to find is that the king said, bring all of these young people in, and Ashpenaz, that's sort of the guy in charge here who's over them, he says, I want you to help me select the best of the best, the cream of the crop. And here's what we're going to do. We're going to give them reasonable living conditions. I want to feed them the best that we have to offer. What was the king doing? He was enticing them. He was inviting them in to say, see, I'm not such a bad guy. I'm going to offer some things to you that you would have never been able to experience in your homeland. This isn't such a bad place to be. And he gave them choice food and choice drink. Now, if you're willing to do it, I know people who say, I, I, won't, I won't write in my Bible. I don't, I don't want to taint the... Listen. I will mark up every page of my Bible and then I'll buy another Bible and I'll mark it up. That's why the Bibles are there. You keep doing that. And what you're doing is you're, you're building a journal for yourself over your lifetime as you make notes. Daniel 1.8, in my opinion, is the most important verse in the entire book. Look at what it says. Of all the things that were available to him, Daniel made up his mind and said no. I will not partake of these things. I will not eat this food. I will not drink of the king's wine. Why? Because he knew that what he was being offered there was not in alignment with what he'd been taught 
in Israel. What he'd been taught in Israel. The book of Leviticus. You see, Leviticus describes the way that the Israelites were to prepare their food. What foods they could eat. What foods they shouldn't eat. And of course, in modern vernacular, we talk about kosher food. And that's basically what Daniel alludes to here. Is the food that we're being served is not kosher. The animals that were killed and prepared were not done so according to the laws of God, the laws of Moses as God gave the laws through Moses. And the foods that they were afforded there were foods that only other people were allowed to eat, but not the Israelites. I love the Hebrew phrase here when it says that Daniel made up his mind. You know what that phrase means? It is a picture of taking multiple strands of cord or rope and braiding them together. You know what he was doing? I think he was taking the teachings of his parents and the sermons of Jeremiah and the leadership of Josiah. Go back, read the book of Kings. You'll discover that Josiah was the good king, the godly king who led in the reforms of Israel and began to turn their attention back to God to live the life that God wanted them to live. And those are the chords that I will refer to as I think about his parents. And Jeremiah the prophet, he heard preach personally. And Josiah and his leadership. And he was weaving them together to make three maybe weaker chords into one stronger chord. And he said, this is not who I am and I will not participate in what is being offered to me. I want to mention what the world is trying to do to us. First thing it's doing, it's asking us to question authority. Who's in charge? What is truth? There is a vibe that exists among younger generations. I'm not preaching against them. I'm just saying we need to understand what is taking place and that There are younger generations of people, I'm not saying these, they're in church this morning, let's be proud of that, applaud them, celebrate the fact that they are here. Young people, I love you and I want you to know that, okay? So I'm not saying anything bad about you, but there is a younger generation who says anything goes. There's there's a mindset that, that basically says there are many ways to God, not just through Jesus, There's a mindset that says, well, that may be truth for you, but that is not truth for me. What I want to say to young people, not just these, but to young people everywhere, and when I have opportunity, I say it to our young people who are in our school system, and I try to do it in a way that is acceptable, doesn't get me in trouble. You understand that. There's a fine line there. Before you go off to college, before you join the military, Before you join a job, you better make up your mind as to who you're going to listen to. The Bible, ladies and gentlemen, is the ultimate source of truth for you and me. The Bible lays out God's expectations and an understanding of who we are and how we are to live. And it is a love relationship. So many people who bash the Bible want to say that it's so hard. It's so judgmental. It's, it's so, you know, God is up there and he's sitting there wondering, you know, when he's going to bring down judgment on. No, no, no. It's a love relationship. And that's the difference. 
As God establishes truth in this world, it's all about love. Because God knows what truth is. Because God knows what the best truth is. <clears throat> and how we are to live. And so absolute truth is in question in these days. We understand that. But there's also not just authority. I think the king was trying to change their identity. You read here back in verse, what was it, verse 7? <coughs> where their names were changed. You see where Daniel's name was changed to... Belteshazzar, you know what that name Belteshazzar means? It means Prince of Baal. Do you know what Daniel means? Maybe somebody here is named Daniel. It means God is judge. Look, look at the next, next name. Hananiah was named Shadrach. You know what Hananiah's name means in Hebrew? It means God is gracious. Isn't that a beautiful name? Mishael means God is great. And Atzariah, that's the Hebrew name, meaning God is kind. These young men, by their own name, the name that they were given by their families in Judah, were bringing honor to God. But once they come to Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar wants to rename them. And when you study the names that they are given here, these Babylonian names, the Chaldean names, you'll discover that every one of their names, for Hananiah... Mishael and Azariah, they were also named after pagan gods and goddesses in that land. Well, what, what's going on here? Well, in the same way, we, we understand that the world is trying to re-identify who we are. It, it wants to change the way we think. It wants to change the way we look. It wants to change the way we respond to things in this world. I mean, I, I know... I know there, there are young people who won't appreciate this, but what we read, the music we listen to, the conversations that we allow to go deeper in with other people than is absolutely necessary, those are the kinds of things that will draw us in and cause us to walk further away from who we should be in God's eyes. So there is an authority question, there is an identity question, and there certainly is a morality question here as Daniel is faced with the king's food and says, we just want you to absorb all that's being offered to you. Take it in and let us remake you into an individual. Have you ever heard the little two stanza poem by a lady that I do not know? Uh, I've never read much of anything about her, but her name is Elia Wheeler Wilcox, listen to what she says. This is the first stanza of a two-stanza poem. The first stanza says, one ship drives east, another ship drives west. Tis the self-same wind that does blow. But it is the set of the sails, not the gale, that determines the direction they go. You may have heard that little phrase before. What Daniel and his friends are experiencing is that they are put into a society and a culture. Their lives were headed in another direction. Nebuchadnezzar is trying to change them and take them in another direction. And Daniel makes up his mind and says, my sails are set in another direction. I would say to our young people, and I would say it lovingly, 
you determine now which direction your life is going to go. That is true for every single one of us here in this morning, no matter how old or how young. I, I heard someone have this conversation recently uh, before the 1960s, if you received your formal education before the 1960s, there was a belief in psychology that basically babies are born in this world and in the first two months, everything is wired together and set. And then everything that they learn after that is just sort of, it just sort of feeds into that first two months of the way that their brains are made. And you never learn anything new. Well, how sad is that, right? Now, some of us may be living proof of that. I don't know. However, I think if you study the Bible, especially like Romans 12, where Paul says, present your body as a living sacrifice, which is holy and acceptable unto God. Do not be conformed to this world. Here's the phrase, and I love it. But be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. You know what the renewing of your mind is? It's going back and strengthening those ropes that you tie down the sails on, on your ship, on your life. It's the moorings that you put down so that when the storms come, you, you, your sails may be torn a little bit, but yet you know I'm headed generally in the right direction, and the right direction is the direction that God wants me to go. Daniel said no. He was tempted. It was there. It was all available to him. But he said no. Well, what did he ask them to do? Well, look down at what it says in verse 12. He says, test your servants for 10 days and let us be given some vegetables to eat and water to drink. The word vegetables there in the Hebrew is the word pulse. P-U-L-S-E. Pulse is the way we would transliterate it. Doesn't that just sound yummy? I mean, appetite, pulse. Give me some pulse to eat. Basically, he's referring to anything with seeds in it. Fruits and vegetables with seeds in it. He said, that's what we're asking for. Give us pulse to eat. Then let our appearance be observed in your presence and the appearance of the youth who are eating the king's choice food and deal with your servants according to what you see. Now, understand that when he first makes this offer, the King Ashpenaz says, no, you know what? If I, if I do that, if you look weakened and haggard before the king, he'll kill me. Daniel said, just, just run a 10-day test. That's all we're asking. Now, is it coincidental that I'm sharing this with you on the first Sunday of the new year? <laughs> what is our normal idea about the start of a new year? I'm going to eat healthier. I'm going to live better. Try the Daniel diet. Just, just an offer, just a suggestion here. Look at what he said. Just fruits and vegetables, that's what I'm going to eat. And then what he says, verse 14. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for 10 days. At the end of 10 days, their appearance seemed better and they were fatter than all the youths who had been eating the king's choice food. So the overseer continued to withhold their choice food and the wine they were to drink and kept giving them vegetables. Verse 17 begins what I call Daniel's greatest triumph. We talked about his trial. We talked about his temptation. Here's his greatest triumph. As for these four youths, God gave them knowledge and intelligence in every branch of literature and wisdom. Daniel even understood all kinds of visions and dreams. That's, that's sort of what he majored in, I guess, while he was in Babylon. It says in verse 18, Then at the end of the days which the king had specified for presenting them, the commander of the officials presented them before Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them. And out of them all, not one was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's personal service. 
As for every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king consulted them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and conjurers who were in all his realm. And Daniel continued until the first year of Cyrus the king. Now that last little phrase there, Daniel continued until Cyrus, first year of Cyrus the king, it, it, it sort of gets ahead, but I want, you to, I want you to see what the Bible is revealing to us here. Daniel is brought to Babylon. He receives the education that is required to attend, but he maintains his own identity as an Israelite. He, he just sort of works it out that, that, that he's able to have the right food. By the way, if you want to underscore some other verses here, I mentioned in verse 2 where it says that the Lord gave Jehoiakim into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. Look at verse 9. God granted Daniel favor. Then look down at verse 17. God gave them knowledge and intelligence. God was overseeing this whole project. God was allowing Daniel and his friends to come into a foreign culture and a foreign land where they were literally going to be Phi Theta Kappa standouts in the king's court. And what that last little verse in chapter 1 is showing us is that even once Nebuchadnezzar was gone off the scene, another king is taken off the scene, Cyrus the Great comes to take over in Babylon, guess what? Cyrus the Great, this according to history, not the Bible, tells us that he relieved everybody else of duty, but one man he kept in a place of prominence and position. You know who that one man was? Daniel. Daniel. God honored Daniel's commitment to him. The convictions that he held about who he was and who was in charge and how he was going to live his life, he made it known and God honored that. And God continued to just put Daniel in this place and in that place and in that place where he could influence kings, rulers, and monarchs. And that's what you're going to see over the next few chapters as we read them together. But it goes back to verse 8. Daniel made up his mind. He wove those strands of rope together and he strengthened his relationship with God. And he said, I cannot, I will not participate in this because I am convinced and convicted that this is not the right thing for me. If I asked you to take out a piece of paper and write down five convictions. And convictions, by the way, I would say are just non-negotiables. These are absolute truths that I will live by in my life. Things that I will do, I must do. Things that I will not do. Could you name five convictions? What about three? What about two? Just a challenge for you to go home. Think about it this afternoon. And ask yourself, what are my convictions? What will I, must I live by? What, thing, what are those things that I will not compromise on in my relationship with God? Think about it. Could those not be guiding principles that take us into the year 2019? 
and help us understand the calling that God has placed on our lives even in a little greater way? Some of you will recognize the name of Bobby Richardson. He uh, played on the New York Yankees baseball team back in the day when they were they were so far in their own league, they, they didn't even have another team hardly that could hold against them, right? Bobby Richardson retired from Major League Baseball, went on to coach at other universities. And the story is told that over the years, he would have opportunities to reunite with some of his old teammates. And the Yankees team that he played on, by the way, was just in the news all the time. They, they were womanizers. They were drunkards. They, they liked to go out and get in trouble in the bars and in the communities. And then they'd come back and they'd perform on the field and like everybody, you know, to overlook all the things that they would do any other time. But Bobby Richardson was a Christian. When all his other teammates were out carousing and doing things that they shouldn't have been a part of, they said Bobby Richardson was at the YMCA coaching kids, going to church, find a prayer meeting in the middle of the week. Who'd have thunk it, right? Bobby Richardson said, I want to go. I want, I want to be with God's people. He would share his faith. He would talk to them about the direction of their lives and the direction of his life and say, guys, we're headed in two different directions and I want you to know the Lord. The Lord loves you and the Lord will save you if you'll only ask him. They wouldn't listen to Bobby until one day Bobby Richardson got a phone call. His wife Betsy came in and handed him the phone and said, Bobby, I think you need to, you need to take the... He took the phone and it was the wife of none other than Mickey Mantle. And she said, Bobby, Mickey's not going to make it much longer. And he's asked for you to preach his funeral. Bobby said, I didn't know what else to say other than I'd be honored. And he hung up the phone and he looked at his wife, Betsy, and he said, we've got to go to Dallas. They got on a, flown, a, a plane, they flew to Dallas. He said he walked in and the first words out of his mouth were, Mickey, I need to know. And before he could finish the sentence, Mickey Mantle said, Bobby, I did it. I asked Jesus to be my Savior. And he said, I cannot do anything but lay here and wish that I'd done it so much sooner. The peace that I have. An understanding of how much God loves me and who He is. And a regret that I didn't do it so much sooner. He said, Bobby, I wasn't a role model. You were the role model. I wish I could have been. Bobby Richardson said, Betsy was with me. and She wasn't convinced. And she went over by Mickey's hand and, or side and took him by the hand and said, Mickey, I want to know one, one thing. If you were to stand before the holy God today, why should he let you into heaven? And Mickey Mantle looked at her and said, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. Bobby Richardson would, able, would be able to tell that story at his funeral and the world would know 
that even in the bottom of the ninth, Mickey Mantle re-established the set of the sails and hit his life in a different direction. Would you stand with me this morning? Father, I pray that you would forgive us for those times that we've been so immature and selfish and determined that we've made decisions that have totally left you out. And Lord, we've lived with those consequences. But this morning as we read about Daniel and his experience in Babylon, we're reminded that we can and we do have the opportunity to reset the sails of our lives. That it's not the wind that blows in this world, whichever way it goes, but it's the direction of the sails that will determine where we land. I pray, Father, that if there is any person here this morning who's without Jesus, that by your Spirit you would convince them of the need to trust Him as Lord and Savior would be willing to come forward in this service and say, yes, I commit my life to Christ and I want to follow Him. Baptism, church membership. And I want to ask this church to help me grow in my faith. Father, if there are Christians here looking for a church home, because Your Spirit would lead them, let them come. Because we receive members in many ways, let them come to inquire about how they can be a part of North Winona Baptist Church. Use us as You see fit and, Father, help our convictions to grow stronger. And let us live lives that are honorable to you through Jesus, we pray.